Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. I negotiated directly with Mr. Mnuchin. And working with him, I was able to carve out and direct to these minority institutions a sum of money that would give them the liquidity that they needed in order to lend to these very small businesses in their community. That's Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who is currently serving her 15th term in the U.S. House of Representatives. She's the first woman and first African-American to chair the House Financial Services Committee, an assignment of critical importance these days. She spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken on Thursday, June 4th. Madam Chairwoman, the first ever African-American woman to head the House Financial Service Committee. And we are so lucky in this time of crisis that you are in this leadership position to help to create a safety net for our country. So thank you for joining me today. You certainly are welcome, Mike. Thank you for wanting to spend some time for us to just talk about any number of issues that we care about, uh, issues that we have talked about in the past. And uh, certainly now is the time with the protests that are going on all over the world and this pandemic that we have. Certainly we have a lot to talk about. And so I'm pleased to be with you today. And let me remind you that I am the first African-American, period, to be the chair of the Financial Services Committee and the first woman. Well-deserved, and as I said, in times of crisis, it's extremely important that a person have experience, vision, integrity on leading this effort, which you have done. Madam Chairwoman, you, a young girl from St. Louis, the fifth of 13 children, who started working in a factory at 13 years of age, who eventually came out to California, got her degree from Cal State in 1970. Busing started in Southern California in 79, and what was going to happen to these schools in South Central LA and other parts of our city that are part of your district today. And you were elected to the California Assembly at that time. And so you served for a decade in California and more than 30 years now in the House. I remember seeing you on the news between 79 and 82 talking about Eula Love. She was killed arguing over a $22 electric bill. Let's take our listeners back to that point in time. Oh, absolutely, Mike. Eula Love was a woman raising two children, two daughters. Her husband had passed away, and of course, she had limited income, and she could not afford to pay her gas bill. And they came out to cut off her gas, and she would not let them do that. She confronted them. She may have had like a butter knife or something. She waved at them. Anyhow, they called the police. And the police came out, and of course, they ended up in this confrontation, and they shot her down on her porch with her daughter standing by. And I was outraged by that, and many of my friends were outraged about that killing. First of all, 
just the idea that the police was coming out to enforce collection on a utility bill, which they had no business doing. Secondly, this single woman raising these children needed help. And then, of course, her daughters witnessing their mom being shot down just really struck me in such a way that I felt I had to do something. And so I organized a group called the Black Women's Forum. We decided to confront Daryl Gates, the police chief. He was non-cooperative. As a matter of fact, he was dismissive. And so we decided that we were going to give publicity to the fact that this had happened. And so Daryl Gates had no concern about trying to really solve the problems of our communities. It turns out that he was dangerous because he uh, was always at the point of confrontation in the community. So I worked very hard in confronting him. We organized, we marched, we went to churches, I wrote editorials. We did everything. We finally got rid of the chokehold and the battering ram. And of course, he finally retired. And when he did, his reputation was pretty much destroyed because he was identified as being racist, as being violent, and being not in the best interest of the city. But when I look at what's going on today, Mike, and I think about what has happened in the years between when I confronted Daryl Gates until now and all of the deaths that have taken place of young black males for the most part and some black women in this country. And every time there is a shooting, killing, people are told that they shouldn't act out, that they should be patient, that they wait until investigations are done, let the uh, justice system take care of whatever the problem was. Well, as it turns out, no police were ever a charge. They were never indicted. And um, for the most part, if there was a court decision, it was justifiable homicide. And so that's kind of basically the way it went. Even today, as we think about what is happening, there are other names of uh, recent killings. Uh, Brianna Taylor, who is a 26-year-old black emergency room technician. She was shot eight times by the police in Louisville, and uh, she was in her bed. And they broke in, no announcement of police. And even as today, there are no arrests have been made. And then there's Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued and killed by armed white men in Georgia in February. He was the one that was simply jogging. His murder was not arrested until May when the video footage was released. And so that's just a few of them. There's a lot in between. And so I think what we see now is we see something unusual, all of these young people out protesting all over the world, is a result of social media and the ability to communicate. It is young people, many of them millennials, who are disgusted with the system, disgusted with their plight. Many of these young millennials who have gone to school, who've graduated, they're not getting the jobs that they thought they would get. They are not able to get married and have families and buy a home. And so I think there's a lot of disgust with leadership, with political leadership. And when this latest incident took place that has created uh, this outpouring, it was because of uh, the very graphic display of a black man pinned down on the sidewalk with the knee of this police officer on his neck. 
for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And these young people have responded to the sight of that killing, of that murder. And they have commanded attention in cities throughout, of course, this country and other countries. And so here we are. And what does this remind you of, Mike? Does this remind you? of what you were involved in with the insurrection that, that was followed by Rebuild L.A. with Tom Bradley and all that was attempted in that period of time? When I referred to 92, I referred to it as an insurrection, something that you called it, not a riot, but an insurrection. Yeah. It covered a much larger area than the Watts riots did and that outpouring, and then the creation of Rebuild LA. And Peter Uberoff, who had led the Olympic effort in 1984 and was commissioner of baseball and was on the Milken Family Foundation board for a number of years, became a head of Rebuild LA. And particularly in 93, as I became active with you, that give and take between the two of you is vivid in my mind as to what the community needed and what was the right approach. And I think, as you've pointed out, during the COVID pandemic, people have been restricted in their movement. It's a different environment. I see a change in the business community, realizing how dependent we were on that person that delivers something to your house, how dependent we were on the person working in a Target store or a Walmart or a Kroger, coming to work and making sure that you have the goods and services you need. How dependent you were on that person in an emergency room and how all these people risk getting the virus by just going to work. And I know you have pushed for this higher minimum wage. And I believe that as we reevaluate jobs and understand that every job is important, and also as they understand how fragile their own business was, they were successfully running a restaurant and now they had no customers. They owned a hotel and now there was no customers. They owned a service and no one was coming. And how they've looked to your leadership and others to find a economic safety net. How in a highly partisan environment in Washington, you've been remarkably successful in working across the aisle, particularly with Secretary Mnuchin and others on the passing of the CARES Act. What was the secret in building these ties in this very partisan environment that allowed you to bring this support to our country? Well, Mike, this pandemic, the likes of which certainly we have not experienced in this country, we've gone through a lot. We had 9-11. We've gone through Katrina and a lot of disasters, but nothing like this health disaster that created the economic disaster. And so we worked in Washington to try and have a legitimate response to help out small businesses in particular, to help keep employees working or being paid while we get through this. And one of the programs is the PPP program. And that is the program that basically was run through SBA with the banks being the facilitators for getting the money out to these businesses. And so we were very concerned about what was happening to small businesses. 
and wanted a way to help them get past this economic disaster. And so the PP program was designed to do that. Well, you know, when you put together big systems over a short period of time, they don't always work the way that you want them to work. And so the banks were put in a position of dealing with some of their larger clients. And the way that the bill was written, basically it was written for businesses with 500 employees or under. But in the law that was created, it, uh, I think, was negotiated between the leadership from both houses that there would be businesses with under 500 employees in multiple locations. And we're talking about hotels or motels or restaurants, et cetera. And so some of them received uh, substantial amounts of money to support their businesses. Some of them gave back the money because when the discussion started about the program really wasn't meant to work that way, some of them decided to return the loans that they had received. The other problems that we had was many of our small businesses who had never dealt with government before and had to go through the application process didn't have consultants or lawyers or any of that. They're having a difficult time. And some of our banks were saying, well, we're only going to deal with our existing customers or if you already have an SBA loan. So these are the kind of kinks in programs. Meanwhile, on the administration side, Mr. Mnuchin was in charge of the negotiations, not only for the PPP program, but other aspects of the response, working with the feds, uh, with Chairman Powell, and creating various kinds of facilities to respond in ways that it was felt would be helpful. For example, the feds came up with what is known as the Main Street Program, and it was to provide loans for those businesses that were not small businesses, but they were not the big, big businesses, something in between. And so Mr. Mnuchin was working with Mr. Powell on that. He was working with Nancy Pelosi and Schumer and the Senate in the negotiations. And I, being the chair of the Financial Services Committee, I negotiated uh, directly with Mr. Mnuchin. Well, you know, anybody that kind of keeps up politics kind of know that early in his service as the Treasury Secretary, there had been an exchange between he and I where I popularized the phrase, reclaiming my time. But he, <laughs> uh, when we got to work on uh, how to deal with the MDIs, we call them the Minority Development Institutions, which are basically black banks and the community financial development institutions, the credit unions and all, we just had a business relationship. He was uh, fair. He was easy to communicate with. I treated him respectfully, and we not only created some additional opportunities because of some of what had happened in the first CARES bill. The money ran out before all of the small businesses that needed it had an opportunity to apply for it. We created a second kind of CARES bill. It was a supplemental to the CARES bill. And working with him, I was able to carve out and direct to these minority institutions a sum of money that would give them the liquidity that they needed in order to lend to these very small businesses in their community. One good thing about what we did was we directed this liquidity to the people who absolutely interact with small businesses. They know the community. They know not only who they are and how their businesses operate, 
but they understand what their needs are. Some of our small community banks are not only here in our area, but over the country, actually help people to fill out their applications who did not have the kind of background to really get it done using the computers and all. And so it turned out to be a very good decision and a very good operation that we had working with Mnuchin. And we're still working on some things. We're looking now at the concessionaires in the airports. He had all of the airport money, a big chunk of airport money to maintain the employees there. And I put some special attention on the concessionaires. Some of these concessionaires are minority businesses, not all of them, but these are the people with the newsstands where you buy your magazines and your newspapers and all. And they've been very successful in having thriving businesses in these airports. So I put some attention on that. Also was taking a look at what we could do to put money into these community financial development institutions, these CDFIs that had been created some time ago, looking at how we could put lending closer to the communities. And so we were able to find out what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are, and how we're going to revitalize those programs and make sure that we have technical assistance. And now I'm thinking about what we're going to do to improve the technology in these small banks and these community development financial institutions. So we've learned a lot in working with all of this. And yes, we're working well together on these issues. And now we continue because those frontline workers that you talked about will also be in the next HEROES bill. You're talking about, you know, the delivery persons, the grocery clerks, nurses, frontline people who, oh, you're right, responsible for us eating, for us being able to have basic services, et cetera. And we're going to work until we do all that we can to stop what has started to happen with some of these businesses, small businesses, closing down that will never reopen again. So this is a huge challenge. The unemployment in this country is over 40 million now. This is scary. We continue to have unprecedented number of infections that are taking place and minorities are dying and the older people are dying in these uh, nursing homes. And so even with what we're doing and with no understanding of when this pandemic is going to end, we are challenged. We are challenged to keep this economy going. We're challenged to deal with coming up with a vaccine. We're challenged with having all of the PPE, that is the equipment that our nurses and our doctors and our clinics need. And so we are not in Washington, D.C. at this point. We're working from our homes. We had to go in and we have to go in and vote. We created some new systems where some people will vote by proxy, but we're determined that we're not going to allow what is happening to make us dysfunctional, that we're going to do everything that we can to not only help the least of these, but to support our businesses and to create ways by which to keep this economy from absolutely collapsing. And that's kind of where we are, Mike. Maxine, when I said, We've been joined at the hip for 40 years. This efforts you've had to create jobs for small and medium business, find out a way to get capital to these small community banks, minority banks, community development banks. This is not new for you. This is a subject 
that has dominated your life for decades. And I've had that honor to work with you when you were head of the Black Caucus. So many people might think that, you know, this is something you're coming to today because of what this crisis is, but this has been core to your belief for decades in creating these jobs. And I just can never forget your Elmer Gantry speeches at the meetings with Rebuild LA about what needed to be done for these communities. Let's talk about yourself. And in many ways, I don't think the public is fully aware of it, but this coronavirus became very personal for you. Tell us about your sister. A sister that as a result of COVID-19, she was the firstborn. She had been in relatively good health. She needed a hip operation. And so they took her to the hospital. She had the hip operation and they tested her afterwards to find out that she had been infected uh, with the virus. And she died within uh, less than three weeks after that was uh, discovered. So, yes, it came close to home with us, you know, having lost her. Uh, but I want to tell you, the story of what is happening to these seniors in uh, nursing homes is absolutely unconscionable. Nursing homes in this country are 40% of all of the deaths uh, due to COVID-19. We know there's a correlation between senior citizens and having the virus be far more serious and death. And we also know that those with preconditions diabetes, heart problems, mm -hmm. AIDS. Mm -hmm. This has also hit the minority community more. How has your community reached out to you for help in this area? My community calls a lot. When we had PPP in the small businesses, they called an awful lot. Ms. Waters helped me. I have one lady who's had a restaurant in Inglewood for many years, and because of gentrification, she had to move because, you know, those properties are just going up because we have all of the sports teams coming in. Anyhow, we helped her out to get that application in. Then I called together all of the business organizations, the Black Chamber of Commerce, the Black Business Association, and a few of those other organizations that have business interests and work with small businesses, only to find out they didn't have liquidity. And so we had to get Secretary Mnuchin, who has uh, the CDFI fund in the Treasury, uh, focused on getting more money to them in order to get them into these communities. So we worked with the business community. Also, uh, we worked with feeding people. A week or so ago, we had uh, what we call Grab and Go, where I worked with uh, millennial entertainers who had a backing from some big companies in order to feed people. And so we had 10,000 lunches. We were able to feed these families. Some of them had five and six kids in the family. And we set up an operation where they drive through. And if they needed six lunches or 10 lunches, we gave them to them. And we used all of the 10,000 that we had. What I loved about it is we were working with other young people. I love the idea of engaging these young people, these millennials, uh, just as you see them on the street today. They are working on some of these other issues that people don't even know about. That's why I think they're going to be very activated for the elections coming up, and they're going to make a significant difference in who gets elected for president and in some of these congressional and senatorial offices also. And so I've shortcut a lot of this because there's so much to talk about, but you have had a hand not only in helping to talk with me about some of the concerns that I've engaged you 
uh, in conversation about. Remember the last conversation uh, we talked about, about lack of capital for some of these small institutions and minority institutions that I'm working with? And you talked to me about the subordinated debt. And I talked to you about some of the term sheets that they had experienced when they tried this and it didn't quite work. In addition to that, you have organized in such a way that you have a voice in Washington in many of the public policy discussions that are going on uh, by including people with expertise and knowledge on some of these complicated issues. This community knows you about your involvement with health issues and what you have done in order to help make men more aware of how to deal with cancer and some of the organizations that you teamed up with in order to get men going to get their examinations and taking care of problems earlier than being in the emergency room at the last minute. So you've made a lot of contributions in your lifetime. Many of the big box operations and stores that we see now would never have been able to come into being had it not been for you and the efforts that you put forward in helping to finance and to believe the possibility of some of these new businesses that could not get financing very easily. And so your efforts are legendary, Mr. Mike. We got to work together in South Central LA. We got to work together in Inglewood over the years, but you chose a path for public service. And who knows what we could have done had we teamed up together in a financial firm. You are a fierce advocate for those that don't have a voice or don't know how to tap into the system. And I think one of the most important things that's occurred in the last three to four months of this COVID-19 crisis is that you understand the plight of that small entrepreneur who might own a dry cleaner or might own a restaurant or might be making some product. You understand the importance of these community and minority banks in that they actually reach out and interact with these individuals that the larger financial institutions have bypassed. And one of the keys I see occurring in the future is how do we get them to these small employers that employ half the people in the country. And one of the other things that as I visited parts of your district with Reg Lewis in the late 1980s, we all know if I have a minority-owned business, whether it's a man or a woman who owns it or leads it, they're more likely to hire other minority workers. And it was so important to me and to you to make sure those who could be leaders uh, got access to capital today. I can't thank you enough for your efforts. One of the things you spoke about that I would like you to describe to our listeners is the HEROES Act, this new proposed legislation. Give us an overview of what that bill will address and its status in Congress today. Well, I certainly can. Our cities and our states must balance their budgets. And when the economy is not working well, they don't have the revenue to do many of the things they'd like to do and provide the services. Many of our cities now are preparing for huge layoffs, which will further harm our economy. And so one part of this bill is to provide substantial sums of money to our heroes 
These are the people on the front line that will be saved uh, by the money that we put into the cities, into the states, into our hospitals. That's the big part of the bill. The other big part of the bill is a rental assistance program that I have created. It's a $100 billion program because some of the cities and states have come up with no eviction policies, trying to keep people from being put out on the street that have lost their jobs, who have not even gotten stimulus money that we have given out, and some don't even have unemployment. I have created a fund, and I think it will be operated through a facility of the feds uh, where the landlords can get paid uh, because it's one thing to talk about no evictions, but many of these small landlords who may have four units, five units, six units, what have you, it's retirement income, they still have a mortgage. They've got to pay. If the renters don't pay, they can't keep the property. And so I am absolutely focused on the fact that we can help the renters not get evicted, but we're going to pay these landlords. So I'm going to make sure that they get their back rent so that they are not placing their whole retirement at risk. We also have some more stimulus money in the bill, and I think the stimulus money would go to families, at least $1,200 for each adult, and at least, I think, $500 or $1,000 for each child. The stimulus money has been very, very helpful, particularly for our low-wage employees, and they have been able to put food on the table and to get their basic necessities taken care of. Uh, there are some other things in that bill, additional support for the minority institutions to be able to make these loans, but it is a $3 trillion bill altogether. Some people are saying, you know, what are we doing? We're we creating further deficit, et cetera. But I have been told by Powell over at the feds, if you got to borrow money, this is the time to do it because the interest rates are so desperately low. But go ahead and think big. That's what he said. He's in charge of monetary policy, and they don't usually tell you that, but that's what he's saying. Madam Chairwoman, I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank you for a friendship that's lasted for four decades, and hopefully we'll, both of us will be active for decades to come. I want to thank you for your commitment, and I want to thank you for your wisdom and your bipartisan efforts here to bring financial safety nets to everyone in our country. And I want to wish you and Sydney, your children, and your grandchildren, good health. You're so generous, and I thank you. And, you know, there are people who, when they find out that we're friends, they go, how you and Mike Milken get to be friends? And I just laugh because people don't know the history, but you're my friend. I respect your brilliance. I respect what you created in this country. And I respect you because in addition to being a very successful businessman, you're a humanitarian. And of course, we connect in so many of those ways. Thank you, Mike. Goodbye now. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.